0: You are now listening to the August 18th broadcast of Unity in Christ. Today's topics are the history of the Biblio, the sex spiral, and grace upon grace. We will begin with the history of the Biblio. This program will examine how the Bible was recorded, inspect the archeological evidence, as well as the different languages it has been translated into.
1: Hey listeners, I'm Jisoo Kang from the History of the Biblio. Last time, we talked about the canonization of the Old Testament. I told you that the Old Testament were chosen as canons at a religious conference. This could raise doubt in people regarding the Bible's validity. Can we trust in this selection process? Isn't the Bible just a fiction put together by humans? But as we explained last time, Canonization wasn't a novel decision for the religious council. These Old Testament texts were already widely in use in the Israel community before canonization. Also, the New Testament reveals that Jesus himself accepted the 39 books of the Old Testament as canons. Thus, the Old Testament is a Jesus-tested canon. But what about the New Testament? How were the 27 books of the New Testament chosen as canons? People widely believe that the 27 books of the New Testament were chosen at the Concilium Carthaginense in 397 AD. But, just like the Old Testament, the New Testament wasn't put together on a spur-of-the-moment decision. Rather, the books had been in use in the church for a long time before being formalized. So then, what was the reason for canonizing or formalizing texts already used within the churches? On the surface, the biggest reason for this was the constant challenge of heresy in the church. As we can see through the book of Acts, after Jesus' ascension into heaven, the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Gentile nations. Post mid first century, many of the epistles within the New Testament had already been written and churches were passing around these letters for reading and teaching. But as the gospel spread and the number of believers increased, so did fake texts advertised written by apostles also proliferate. With this, sects began to form. One example of such a sect was the Marcionist sect. The Marcionists denied God as he appeared in the Old Testament. The Marcionists argued that only the book of Luke and 10 of Paul's epistles could be considered official Christian texts. These texts convinced the first churches that they needed to formalize a Bible, one that would become the main Christian text. But canonization then wasn't a contested decision as it might seem now. This was because there was a very sure standard when it came to selecting books for the New Testament. The first of these standards was whether the text was authored or influenced by an apostle. The word apostle means one who is sent, and Jesus appointed his 12 disciples as apostles. Acts chapter 1 verses 21 to 22 states the criteria for apostleship. An apostle had to be someone who was with Jesus from the start of his ministry, was always with Jesus, and witnessed Jesus' death and resurrection. Paul was a strange case, who was appointed an apostle by Christ after meeting Christ. Authorship for all 27 books of the New Testament is easily verified. First, the book of Mark, which is thought to be the first of the Gospels written, was written by Mark. Mark was a disciple of Peter and accepted widely under Peter's authority as an apostle. Also, Matthew, the author of Matthew, and John, the author of the book of John, were both apostles and disciples of Jesus. Luke, the author of Luke, and the book of Acts, was a fellow evangelist of the apostle Paul and accepted under Paul's authority. Additionally, as you well know, the 13 epistles of the New Testament were written by the Apostle Paul. And aside from the Gospels, the Book of Acts, and Paul's epistles, there is also 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Revelations, written by the Apostle John, and 1st and 2nd Peter, written by the Apostle Peter. Also, written by the leader of the Jerusalem church, James, someone with authority equal to that of an apostle, is the Book of James. There is also the Book of Jude, written by James's brother, the Apostle Judas Thaddeus. The remaining book is the book of Hebrews, whose author remains anonymous. But the book of Hebrews was believed to have been written by a disciple of Paul and thus was canonized. The second criterion for canonization in the New Testament is universality. Universality speaks to whether the certain book was accepted and widely used by the first churches as message of God. Shall we look at an example of the universality of a text? 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16, states the following. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all of his letters. The apostle Peter talks about Paul's epistles, meaning Peter was already aware that such epistles existed. This is clue that the early churches were already using Paul's letters as biblical texts. The third criterion is legitimacy. Legitimacy speaks of whether there is thematic consistency within the Old and New Testaments. As stated previously, just as the gospel spread to ever-widening circles, there was also a spread of false teachings from false apostles. Many texts sported the name of apostles as if the apostle had written it. For example, there were supposedly books such as the Gospel of Thomas and Revelation as according to Paul. At passing glance, these could seem like parts of the Bible. However, the content of these books varied significantly from anything Jesus or the Apostles taught. Thus, they could not be accepted as parts of the Bible. The 27 books of the New Testament were canonized through these three standards. To reclarify, canonization first required the backing or authority that only Apostles called and trained by Jesus could have. Second... The books needed to have been something people used regularly within the first churches and third the information contained within the text needed to have continuity with the other stories in the bible and resound as truth last time we explored the canonization of the old testament and this time we started the canonization of the new testament the 66 books of the bible chosen as canons weren't chosen as many people think by christians to be solely advantageous for christians canonization was a process that came about through the biblical figures of the Old Testament who received and taught the Word of God, and the Israel community that experienced God firsthand. The canonization of the New Testament was due to the apostles who directly received the Word of God from Jesus and the Christian communities within the first churches. The Bible, a work orchestrated by God, was canonized because the Holy Spirit intervened. Also, the many people who are transformed to obey and follow the Bible as truth is proof that the 66 books of the Bible are indeed God's words, His canons. How about you? Do you believe in the 66 books of the Bible as God's truthful message? I pray that as you study the history of the Bible's canonization, God's message acts as your sole guiding light. We end here, today. See you next time.
2: the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me a sinner condemned unclean singing how shall ever be. How marvelous and how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. You sing that first verse, verse again. I stand amazed. I stand amazed in the praise. Of Jesus the Nazarene.
0: Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program May contain mature language and subject matter.
3: Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor
0: Dustin Daniels.
3: What is your definition of trust? Do you find it hard to trust other people? What about your family? How about your spouse? And lastly, is it hard for you to trust God? Well, today we're going to dive into this topic of trust. And one thing to note before we get to this lesson is that God never intended us to trust Him perfectly. He never intended us to do anything at any time perfectly. I mean, it's impossible. Sin has left us so flawed and so scarred, we just can't do it. Jesus Christ is the only one who is perfect. Now, we can do things with excellence, that's completely different. We can strive for excellence, we can learn from past mistakes and make adjustments on the way. That's what we're supposed to be doing. But if we have this mindset that we're that things must be done perfectly, Wow, man, I, that's just a prescription for an ulcer. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, especially when it comes to trying to recover from a habitual sin like pornography. So if you struggle with the sin of perfection, I would like to encourage you to think back to where this mindset comes from. Was it your mom? Maybe it was your dad. Was it somebody else that raised you? Maybe a coach or teacher had some influence in your life, regardless of of who it, who it was, this flawed view of life, of trying to reach perfection, is a serious roadblock to our trust. Perfection is solely based on performance. And when we have to live a life of performance, it's so hard. It's really hard to have a deep, meaningful relationship with anybody. In today's lesson, I'm going to continue to share about my story of being hopeless and how I dealt with it. We're also going to talk a lot about what trust truly looks like when you've got nothing left to grab a hold of, but God himself. In today's podcast, we're going to discuss three things. Number one, how there's a direct correlation between the loss of hope and the inability to trust. Number two, how hopelessness can turn into suicidal thoughts. And number three how hopelessness will always cause me to lose my resilience in being able to function well in relationships. So let's get started with today's lesson. This is Learning to Trust Imperfectly. So what's trust? Trust is starting small and walking slow, Colossians 2.6. As you have received Christ Jesus, just walk with Him. If you've been to my office, you may have seen Jesus walking on the water. You can't see his face. I love that photo. And it's this idea of just follow him. You don't know where he's going. He just says, follow him. It's amazing, right? When Jesus got the apostles, his disciples, he said, follow me. He didn't say, believe me. He didn't say, trust me. He said, follow me. I want you to hang out with me. I want to show you some things. So that's where trust is established. Trust is being aware that the situations and the temptations in your life are options to glorify God. Being tempted is not a sin. We all have choices. And that's what the last 13 weeks have focused on. Your choice to get your eyes off your sin and back on your Savior. A choice to remain a little boy in a man's body by fulfilling every little desire because of our lack of self-control. Or a choice to turn away from that sin and say no. 1 Corinthians 13:11 says, "When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, and when I became a man, I gave up my childish ways." Learning to trust in God and others breaks this spiral. Learning to trust in God and in others breaks the spiral. And I'm not here to teach you or clarify a process for you guys to get rid of your sin. I'm simply here to give you my life as an example of how to trust in Jesus who has already paid for your wages and sexual sin. And this trust is, is done very imperfectly. There's lots of mistakes on the way. You don't need to, to have the, the Bible memorized to start gaining victory in your life over lust. You guys have everything that you need. Colossians 2.6 If you grew up without hope or if you grew up in a dysfunctional family, you know, the confusion with that dysfunctional family, it lends us to be highly compulsive anyway. So at this point in the spiral, your vulnerability to addiction is is heightened without a loss of hope. So how do you guys view yourself? How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as an addict, sinner, pervert, What's God say about you? God says you're a saint who happens to sin on your worst day. See, my lack of significance goes directly against my identity. There's a huge difference between what I do and who I am. You can read Romans 7 on that. And when I lose hope, it's because I can't trust. And if I can't trust, I don't have any hope. Maybe you've hurt me so much I don't know how to trust, or maybe I believe I've sinned so badly that I truly don't know where to start, but whatever the reason is, there's a direct correlation between the loss of hope and your inability to trust. For those of us who struggle with suicidal thoughts, it's because we've lost hope. We don't know how to trust, and if I do, I trust in the weakest person on the face of the planet, and that's me. We trust in ourselves. When we start trusting in ourselves, those decisions, those thoughts get darker and darker. So where do we find our identity? Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And it's in love that he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us, and in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11, in him, guys, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works still All the things according to the counsel of his will, so that we were the first to hope in Christ that we might be to the praise of his glory. And in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is our identity. We're blood-bought brothers in Christ. We've been adopted. Regardless of what you've done, you're forgiven if you've accepted Christ. Learning to hope in Him is part of the journey. As we think about hopelessness, it's really important to understand what's going on in our lives at the same time, because this spiral isn't being lived in isolation, is it? You guys are going to work. You're engaging in relationships. You're spending money, raising kids. This is not just, you know, you're not out on an island dealing with this issue. You're dealing with this issue, and this is where the messiness of life gets messed up in it because you're dealing with this and trying to do life and live life, aren't you? But see, repeated failure in this spiral does something to us. It begins to convince me And minimize the significance of who I am, of who I am as a person, that I'm not worthy to be called an adopted son of God. I mean, we're many things to many people. We're children of God, who, by the way, is the Lord of Lords. He's the King of Kings. He's the creator. He's the Lamb of God who's taken away our sin. But at the same time, we're we're husbands and sons and brothers and business owners and employees and neighbors Hopelessness will always cause me to lose my resilience and being able to function well in, re- in relationships. As we go through this spiral, it goes like this, every time that we go around, we just get tired of getting right back up and that's where hopelessness sets in. Why should I get back up? Life's just gonna get me beat me down again. God doesn't care right? We start thinking those thoughts. And instead of Romans 12, 1 and 2 of renewing our mind, we've got trigger number two playing, which is the shame that says, you suck, Dustin. You're never going to be nothing. Your dad was right. He's a loser. You're a loser. And you're a coward. And I'm telling you guys tonight, that's bull. It's a lie. And it's a lie straight from hell. You start losing your resilience in this. This is where hopelessness sets in. I want to encourage you to step forward and learn to trust God vertically and learn to trust other people because that's your only way out of this. We can choose to trust in ourselves, my thoughts, my way, my skills, and my talents. It's it's the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I, right? Or we can choose to trust in God. Deuteronomy 30, 19 says, Today I have given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. And now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice that you're going to make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. Proverbs 3, uh, verses 5 through 8 reads, Trust in the Lord with all of your hearts and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him. And he's going to make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It's going to be a healing to your flesh. Check this out. When you do these things, it's going to be a healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Would you like some healing right now in your life? Would you like some refreshment, some peace over your world? Trust in the Lord with all of your hearts and don't lean on your own understanding. Don't lean on your experiences, but trust in Him. Choosing life it means choosing God because God is life. God is love. He's the very definition of what love is. And you know what? He's not mad at you. He's not mad at you for your sexual sin, for looking at pornography. He's not out to get you. Your punishment of this sexual sin has been paid by Jesus Christ on that Roman bloodstained wooden cross. He bore your guilt and your shame. And now he's inviting you to choose him by choosing life. Where there is life, there is freedom. You want to be free? Check this out. Galatians 5.13, the Apostle Paul writes, For you were called to freedom, my brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. That word opportunity there, it's this concept. It's this idea that we allow, it's a choice. We allow a set of circumstances that are fitting for a certain activity. So, what the Apostle Paul is saying here is, is don't use your freedom in Christ to play games. Don't think that you have the willpower to play games with pornography, to see how close you can come to watching something on YouTube that you consider, well, oh, that's not pornographic. The problem with that is it's gonna lead you, it's the opportunity that you're giving yourself that's gonna lead you down the, that path to pornography. It's it's a gateway drug, so to speak. So the Lord's saying, you know, don't give your flesh the opportunity because your flesh is weak. We got to be proactive in this. And if we continue to trust in ourselves, well, then we've just trusted in the weakest person on the face of the planet. So if you don't have a current filtering software system on all of your digital devices Let me recommend Covenant Eyes filtering software. I've been using this thing for years, and I love it. Thank you so much for listening to God, Sex, and You. I'm Dustin Daniels. And if you're in Phoenix, I want to invite you to our weekly community group. It's a grace group that focuses on healthy sexuality. It's for men and women. Single, divorced, husbands and wives, together, everybody is welcome. You're invited to listen to God with us every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Northern Hills Community Church. We're in Building A, Room 301. You can follow me on Twitter at Purity Pastor, and you can email me your questions. I would love to respond to those. Visit DustinDanielsRadio.com. 1 Corinthians 4.20, the Apostle Paul writes, The kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk. It's living in God's power. It's being in God's power. And that power is in the very name. It's the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior God. 71% of teens have admitted to hiding what they do online from their parents. This is just one of the many, many reasons I believe it's so important to protect all of our devices with Covenant Eyes. I've been using it for years, and if you do not have protection on all of your uh, computers and cell phones and tablets, let me encourage you. Visit CovenantEyes.com today, receive a 30-day free trial when you use my name, Dustin Daniels with no spaces in that promo box.
0: Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is How to Talk Back to the Devil based on Matthew chapter 4 verses one through five. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark.
4: Now if you open your Bible to Matthew and we'll look at the fourth chapter. You know, while you're going there, I guess parents still aren't sure what to do with kids who talk back to them. One of the things my mom taught me to do was not to talk back to her. I think I tried it once postulated the argument that kids who talk back become more successful adults. And I can tell you beyond a doubt what mom's response would be to that argument. She would have said, sure, but that's only if they live to be adults. (laughs) I want to say this from the very beginning, that I do think that believers who talk back to the devil have more successful lives. I believe that and we're going to learn how to talk back to the devil. Now, you gotta realize that he talks to every one of us, and I don't mean that you're gonna hear necessarily an audible voice, but there's his suggestions, there's his insinuations, there's his harassment in all of our lives. You're not unique. By the way, I'm taking it for granted that we all believe that there is a literal devil, that he really exists, that he is the father of evil. Let me tell you why I started thinking about talk back in the first place. Here, something in the fourth chapter of Matthew caught my attention. And uh, let's look at verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, Oh, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. I want you to see here that Satan spoke to Jesus. In fact, he carried on multiple conversations with Jesus during this wilderness experience. But we see that Jesus did something that made Satan leave and run away. Now, I want us to think about this, that none of the disciples were at this event, were they? He hadn't even called his disciples. He didn't have 12 disciples yet. This was Jesus' experience all by himself in the wilderness. How did we find out? How did the disciples find out? Jesus had to tell them. Now, why did Jesus tell them about this event? Many reasons, but there was something here that Jesus wanted us to know about how to talk back to the devil. And Jesus considered this incident very important. Now, among other things he wanted them to know was what to say when the devil talks to you. How can we cause him to depart like Jesus did? Well, here's the context. Jesus was being baptized, I mean, most of us should or have been baptized, and talk about a baptism. He's in the water, all of a sudden the heavens open, there's a glory of God coming down on him, the Holy Spirit comes down upon him in the form of a dove, and there's this voice that says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Talk about a baptismal service. You didn't want to miss that one, amen? That's awesome. That would be, I think, the high point of my life if that happened. And you have to say, it was one of Jesus' highest points in his life. But right after that comes what we're reading about here in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus, it says, was led by the Spirit. He was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness and he was tempted by the devil. I just want to see a point of application here, and that is that oftentimes, after some high point in your life, Satan will come and want to pull you down. Don't forget that. That often happens. So, Jesus is in the wilderness, he's 40 days, 40 nights without food. He's in the Judean wilderness, which makes the Arizona wilderness look like the Garden of Eden, by the way. It's a dangerous place. There's no water. The sun has burned his skin, his peeling, his lips are parts. They're broken open. He is weak. He's skinny. He has no strength. And it's at that time that the enemy comes to attack him. Satan will come at your weakest moment. When Jesus needs the help, Satan comes. He has no compassion. He has no sympathy. When you need the most help, it's where he will come and try to pull you down. He'll try to come and destroy you. You know, when looking at Jesus in the state he's in, Satan says, well, if you're the son of God, if you're the one he dearly loves, what are you doing looking like this? If God's taking care of you, why are you in this situation? You know, and if there was an if postulated to Jesus by the devil, believe me, we get our ifs from Satan too, don't we? Well, if you're a Christian, then why is this happening to you? If God really loves you, then why? It's part of that wilderness experience. Jesus had several options at that point with what he could do during that time of temptation. I mean, I'm thinking of some of them. First of all, he could have disappeared. He could have just said, I'm rapturing, and he beams himself someplace else. That would be possible. Jesus could have destroyed the devil. Jesus could do a... Show glory moment, you know, like the transfiguration. He could just gloriated himself, illuminated the whole desert with his glory. Satan would have gone away. Or he could have simply called for reinforcements. Remember the 10,000 angel thing? Remember he says, I could call 10,000 angels right now and they would deliver me. They'd take care of me. He could have done that, but Jesus didn't do any of those things. And you want to know why he didn't do those things? because he knew we couldn't do any of those things. I can't rapture myself out of temptation. I can't destroy the devil. I don't have any glory to show. I can't call 10,000 angels to defend myself. And Jesus says, I know you can't do that, so I want to show you how you can do it. I'm going to do it just the way you're going to be able to do it. And here's what Jesus did. Jesus talked back To the devil. I want you to turn the person on your right. I want to say, Jesus talked back. Now we've all been taught you don't talk back. Nobody talks back to mama, right?" right? But it's okay to talk back to the devil. Let me tell you what I mean. Look back at verse three. Satan suggested Jesus that he should turn rocks into bread, and Jesus talked right back to him, and he says, Satan, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus talked right back to him, and he said, it is written. Say that. It is written. Again, in verses 5 and 6, Satan told Jesus what to do. The devil took him to the holy city, sat him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for, what does he say? It is written. And then he quotes. Bible verse, he will command his angels concerning you, and then he quotes another, and on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Wow, do you notice this? Now we have a Bible-quoting devil. Do you know that Satan knows the Bible? Probably knows the Bible better than you do. And here he's quoting the Bible. He heard Jesus say, it is written. So he comes along and say, well, It is written. I want you to know that Satan can, are the words that he quoted true? Yes. He's quoting Bible verses. They're out of context. That's what the cults do, by the way. They'll take a verse here, a verse there, a verse there, and when they put them all together in their way, it makes their false doctrine sound right, but you know, it's because they're not in context. And Jesus took those verses that Satan was taking out of context, and he said, wait a minute. You're making the Bible contradict the Bible, and it doesn't contradict itself. And he said, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus put the word in its proper context. Satan is a persistent conversationalist. Look at verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory, and he said to him, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, read with me, be gone. I've always wanted to say that. So I'm going to ask us to all shout it out so that I'm kosher, okay? So Jesus said to him, go ahead, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. Luke's gospel reports one tiny detail in this, about this which isn't included here, and the detail that he includes could be translated this way, and when the devil had ended every possible kind of temptation, he stood off from him until a suitable situation. See, Jesus only tells us a few of the temptations that he had. Every possible temptation is what he endured. Now, notice verse 10 again. Jesus talked back to the devil. Be gone, Satan, he says. One translation says, be gone, Satan, for it is written. Another says, away from me, Satan. Another says, go away, Satan. Another says, get out of here, Satan. And I love the way the message paraphrases it. He says, Jesus' refusal was curt. Beat it, Satan. Amen. Literally, it says, be gone and keep on going, Satan, for it has been written and at present is on record. Be gone and keep on going, Satan. And that's what we're learning to do today, to be able to say, be gone and keep on going, Satan. We're going to talk back to the devil And one thing that will make the devil run from you is to know what the written word is and how to use it. Bible study is not just something you might think about doing. It's something you have to do if you want to be able to say it is written and push back Satan's temptations, his accusations, and his insinuation, and his harassments. Now, Satan is a big talker and doesn't want you to get a word in edgewise. You know people like that and try to get out of the conversation. That's even worse, right? It's like, do you get the hint? You take five steps back and they just follow you. You know people like that? Let me see. He didn't know how to, he won't stop yapping. Satan talks to you about your salvation. Satan talks to you about losing your salvation. Satan talks to you about your doubts. Satan talks to you about your accomplishments. He talks to you about your marriage. Satan talks to you about your past. Satan talks to you about your finances. Satan talks to you about your fears. Talks to you about your present sins and failures. Now, you've gotta learn to talk back to the devil and you do it just like Jesus did. When Satan talks to you about your salvation, get ready here, write down some things because I want you to have the it is written to show right in his face. When he talks to you about your salvation and accuses you of not being saved, you say, that's a lie. Say that, that's a lie. I've believed and confessed with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. I believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead. I am saved, I've confessed him. It is written, Satan, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. It is written, I write these things to you in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life for son 5:13. You have the word ready. Satan comes and you push back. You talk back and you talk back with the book. Amen. Somebody say amen. amen. When Satan talks to you about your salvation, maybe thinking that you might lose your salvation, you've got to say, you've got to speak, John 6 39. You've got to say, it is written, my Jesus said, and this is the will of God, that I should not lose one of those he has given me, but that I should raise them up on the last day, for it is my Father's will that all who see the Son and believe in him should have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Take that, Satan. Another thing that you could say is you could say, it is written, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and they know me, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. My father who is greater than me holds them and no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. And that's John 10, 27. It is written. And you say, I'm not losing my salvation. This is the word of God. And you got to have it there. And when Satan talks to you about your doubts, you got to have 2 Timothy 1, verse 12 ready. And you got to be able to talk back. He says, you know, you need to doubt this. I don't know if you can trust God. You pull out 2 Timothy one, and you say, I am persuaded that my God is able to keep what I've committed to Him against that day. I'm persuaded that my God is going to take care of me. I don't have to doubt. I'm persuaded, Hebrews 11, verse 1, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I'm persuaded it is written, we walk not by sight, we walk by faith. And you have your arsenal ready, just like Jesus did. And you talk back. The way you cause Satan to run away and leave you alone, like he did with Jesus, is found in James 4, 7. Go there with me. Go to the right after the big book of Hebrews. You'll find James chapter 4. I want you to see this. This is just what Jesus did. James chapter 4, verse 7. Let's go. Here we are. It says, resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. This is pretty cool. Resist. The word resist, gang, means to push back. What am I talking to you about? I'm talking to you about talking back to Satan, aren't I? Resist the devil. Push back. And he will flee. You know, it's said really, about Jesus interaction with him he left Jesus here it says he will run away from you resist the devil tell me how we resist Satan through the word of God that's how we resist the devil and he will flee from you when Satan talks to you about all your achievements you remind him it is written and you're just quoting Philippians 3 7 All your achievements, you say, you know, it is written, Satan, whatever gain I have, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss in view of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. You know, anything I have, it's trash. That's what Paul is really saying. It's nothing. It is written, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James 4, verse 8. Satan, pride goes before destruction. Don't try to get me all puffed up. I'm nobody. You know, any service we do for God, we do just because he deserves it. What reward should there be in it? You know what I'm saying? I would say, he just deserves it. Glory be to God. Praise God. It's all to his glory, and it's what we should do anyway. When Satan talks to you about your marriage, does he ever talk to you about your marriage? Don't move your head, okay? Single people, you are blessed. I just have to tell you, don't get me wrong, but as a single person at this point, you don't have to promise to love and cherish anybody else. You know what I mean? You follow God. You love and cherish God. Married people, I mean, they have promised to love and cherish some sinner. But when he talks to you about your marriage, and he starts picking at your spouse, and he starts... You you know, out all the, the things that your spouse is doing. You just remember 1 Corinthians 13, will you? And you just say, Satan, it is written, love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. Is that really in the text? It is, I, <laughs> I want you to be ready. Psalm 103, great psalm, many, many pieces of it are just over the top, but I want you to be ready. He's gonna send me, you know what you did in the past? I know who you are, I know what you did. And he tries to define you by your past. I'm gonna be the devil's advocate right now, and I'm gonna accuse you of your past, and you're gonna say, it is written. Okay, your past, now verse 12, you say, it is written. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove my transgressions from me. So take that, right? And you go to hell with that if you want. You accuse me of my past, it is written. As far as the east is from the west, so far. You know, north and south, thank God he didn't say that, because you can measure north to south. But you can't measure east to west. See, the word's inspired, It's that way for a reason. So far, he has removed my transgressions from me. And while you're leaving Satan, (laughs) you can say, Romans 8, 1, it is written, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me remind you what this word condemnation means. It's a picture the Greeks would have known. They wouldn't have to explain it. But the word condemnation actually is a word that represented what happened when you were standing before a judge, the judge found you guilty, pronounced the sentence on you, and then the gavel hit the desk. It's done, there's no turning back, that's condemnation. Right here, you answer Satan when he talks to you about your passing, you just say, Satan, it is written, there is no passing of a judgment on me. There is no gavel coming down, sealing any sentence upon me. There is no condemnation for me because I am in Christ Jesus. Somebody say amen to that. You know, he hates to hear that. He hates to know believers who can say, it is written, Because he can push those who don't know that all around and he can wreck their lives and cause them to be spiritually miserable. And that's why I say, I think the most successful Christians are the one who talk back to Satan. And they know their it is written. I mean, Isaiah 43, 25, your transgressions, I sweep them away for my own sake and remember your sin no more. Isaiah 43, 25, I don't get that verse. I've got friends who know more about me, about theology. I have a friend who just got his doctorate. He is smarter than me. But he couldn't figure this out if I ask him. How does God who knows it all forget? If you know it, talk to me after the service, okay? You're trying to figure out who is that guy. It's Brian Fergus, okay, he just... How does God remember my sins no more? You know why? It's a conscious effort by God. He says, I will not bring that stuff up. It's gone. When Satan, you know, you've got to resist the devil. You've got to talk back and he will flee from you. When Satan talks to you about your finances, you say, Philippians 4, you say, it is written, Satan, my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory through Christ Jesus. Amen. That's what you say. You don't listen to him. You don't get freaked out. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You can tell him, hey, look at, look at this. Luke chapter 6. Here's a good it is written. And by the way, if he's harassing you, and it takes you a minute to find the it is written, it's okay. Don't think, well, I, I just can't think. You know what? That's part that it's okay. Will you wait a minute, please? I'm going to find the it is written for you. Even while I am looking, I'm resisting you. Okay, it's like a superpower. Who are the, I don't know, one of those superheroes that I love. You know, they just hold their hand and the enemy's attacking me. As long as their hands out, it's all... And they can do something with the other hand because they're superheroes. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. Everybody got my picture? Yes. I'm not saying it very well. It's con- I'm just spontaneous right now, okay? So you're resisting while you're looking. Where does it say that? I know it says that somewhere. Look at this. I want you to look at, at this amazing promise here in Luke chapter six, verse 38. Jesus said, it is written, we can say, Give, and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together. By the way, not like the bag of potato chips you buy. You get this bag, it's full of air, isn't it? You buy it, you get it home, and you're going, whoa, somebody got in the chips before it got sealed, right? And then you read the fine print. The the other day, you ever buy the thing of protein powder, huge thing, you spend 50 bucks on it, you open it up, and it's half filled what? And then the fine print, this is sold by weight, not by volume. God doesn't deal with you this way. You give and it will be given to you. And God says, I'm not going to respond to you in a little way. No, I'm going to pour my blessings upon you. I'm going to heat them on you. I'm going to press it down. I'm going to shake it together. It's going to be pouring into your lap. And then he does say, for the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. You give to me in a big way. There you go, you'll get a big one. You give me a little, you'll get a little, but I'm gonna bless you. And so when Satan warns you about your finance, my God shall supply all my needs, Satan. It is written that he is gonna give me blessings and they're gonna be adequate. They're gonna be pouring over. When Satan talks to you about your fears, here's one. The it is written is Isaiah 41. He talks to you about your fears. Fear not, God says, for I'm with you. Be not dismayed before I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you. I will with my righteous right hand. Take that. I fear not. God is with me. God will help me. When Satan talks to you about your present sins. Now, this is one that he wants to have long conversations with you about your present sins, your recent failures, your continual struggle with some sin or sins. This is where he wants to have long conversations with you. And you've got to be ready to push back. Now, you're not going to feel like you even are worthy to push back on this one. Right? You're gonna feel like, oh, you know, I'm so bad, I feel God so much, I, and you're gonna be weak, and this is where he's just gonna to wanna to push you over. Listen, I'm telling you, saints, you gotta talk back. You've gotta resist the devil on this one, and he will flee from you. Well, what do I say, what do I do? I, I'm honest, I really mess up all the time. Here's the it is written for you. First John, chapter one, verse nine. This is your it is written. This is the book of John right back near the book of Revelation. This is your, it is written. This is what you push back with. And I'm saying you push back hard with this because every believer shrinks back because they fail God. Really, that's the area where the enemy can get them. I'm saying you push back with 1 John 1, 9 and you read it with me. What does it say? Read it out loud. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now, would you please look at the footnote of that verse? Does anybody have a footnote that says, oh, this only applies for 10 times? You know, you can confess it Maybe 10 times, but after that, God says, come on, dude. How many times do you think you can come to me over this thing? Isn't it about time you get over this? Look, there is no limit. Do you hear me? There is no limit. You keep coming to God. You keep confessing your sins, and he is faithful and just, righteous to forgive you of your sins, to cleanse you from it all. I just don't know I want you to think about this think when God saved you when God chose you he knew you you are no surprise to God there is nothing in your life nothing you have done or can do that God is going to go oh oh my goodness I never thought Gabriel did you ever think this would happen Oh, by the way, how did she get in here anyway? Hello. <laughs> that's not going to happen because when God saved you, he saved you knowing everything, and that's why it's called amazing what? Grace. It's true, God saved you knowing you. So when you fail, even if you fail over and over and over and over again, he is faithful, he is righteous, you are righteous in Christ, Jesus is your righteousness, Jesus covers you, you stand complete in him and I would say it is written, it is written, there's no condemnation for me. Why are you bringing this up again? You brought up my past, now you're bringing my present, You know, there's no condemnation, I'm free in Christ, I'm cleansed in Christ, I'm a new creation in Christ. Be gone, Satan, amen? When Satan likes to talk to you about your worries, this is how you respond. You say, Satan, it is written, cast all your anxieties upon him, for he cares for you, push back. When he talks to you about death, That freaks a lot of people out He talks to you about death This is what you push back with You talk back You say the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want He makes me lie down in green pastures Even though I walk through the valley of the what? Shadow of death I will what gang? Fear no evil And he goes on to say And I will dwell in the house of the Lord Tell me how long? Forever Talk back to him Put the word of God in his face. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Let him know it is written to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. To depart is to be with Christ. Resist the devil. Talk back to him. It is written. Satan fears the word of God. He hates the word of God. Yeah, he can quote it, but he hates it. And it has power over him. You understand that? It's light. It's power. It's a sword. The Bible says it's a hammer. The Bible says it's fire. Satan hates the word of God. That's why he doesn't want you to know it. That's why he doesn't want you to have an it is written ready. I want you to look, you know, at, in view of all of this, I want you to look at the book of Romans and look at Romans chapter eight. In view of all of what we've seen here, in view of all that we've heard, look at Romans eight and verse 31. And I want us to say this, I want us to speak the word not just read it, I want us to speak the word. I want it so the person next to us can hear it and be encouraged. I want it so that I can hear it and get it more in my mind. Let's go. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, what? Who can be against us? I want you to turn to the person on your left and I want to say, you to say, God is for you. Say that. God is for you. Come on, good and strong. God, One more time, got it. I want you to turn the person on the other side and smile and say, God is for you. Where else can you go today and have somebody tell you that God is for you? Isn't that the best feeling in the whole wide world? God is for me. Someone told me today at church, I felt like giving it up. I felt like ending my life. but I was told today, God is for me. What shall we say in light of all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then we just want to go down a little bit farther and we want to look at verse 37. It says, in all these things, all this stuff in life, all the conversations that the enemy wants to have with us, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I love this, what can I be sure about in this life? There are a lot of things I can't be, but I sure can be sure about this. Verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, these are evil powers, nor things present, nor things come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate me from the love of God which is in Jesus Christ my Lord. I'm sure about that. How about you? No doubt. Now, if we're gonna talk back to Satan, the other side of this is we're not gonna talk back to God. Amen? Like I say... I can't talk back to my mom. (laughs) Tried it once. We can talk back to Satan, but you can't talk back to God. If you're gonna be a successful Christian, you talk back to Satan. It is written, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But you must listen to God. And right in the passage... In James chapter four, where we've heard our verse, resist the devil and he will flee from you. In James four, seven and eight, it goes on to say, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. One more time. Submit yourself to God. That means here's God, you go under him. And by the way, that's a place of protection, isn't it? So you come in, you submit to what God says. He says things for a reason. He's not just arbitrary. He says things for a reason to give himself glory and to protect us. Submit yourselves therefore, unto God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Talk back. Resist, but draw near and submit to God. Oh, we got to pray right now. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that we can push back, that we can resist, that we can talk back to the enemy, the one that you have conquered, by the way, the one who's defeated at the resurrection. And we can listen to you. I want to pray victory now for everybody here. I want to encourage through, we all want to pray for one another to be encouraged. In Jesus' name. And everybody said a great big, amen.
5: and what can i do but offer this heart oh god so oh, Lord, to you surrendered all
0: This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.